Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let me um, pray for us once more and we'll dive into God's word for us this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, um, I cannot but uh, reiterate what Marshall just prayed for. <clears throat> our relationship to your word uh, is more than simply our relationship to the Bible. Um, our relationship to our word is indicative of our relationship to you. You are God who is separate from us, and you have come to dwell in us uh, through the Holy Spirit, um, according to the redemption of Jesus Christ, all of which is given to us through your word. Without it, we have no light in a dark place. We have no lamp in the midst of our night. We have no sight for our dead eyes, no, nor sound in our dead ears. Um, but Lord, you have spoken so that we might not simply know your word, but that we might know the one who stands behind it. So help us in all of our endeavors today, Jesus. Be with us, working through the power of your Holy Spirit in the midst of your word as you have promised to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I wanted to read a story for you from our local newspaper that might be of immediate relevance to your life. It says this, when, a French, when Frenchtown athlete Addie Lewis began swimming in the first grade, she never imagined she'd become an NCAA Division I signee. She is no longer a member of the House of Representatives and has yet to be sworn into her new seat in the Senate. Such is the case around Western Montana where multiple different avalanche problems overlap. Unless you're a glutton for punishment, it's not a good day to be wandering around the backcountry. That's what made dedicating herself to the sport so easy. Does that story make sense to you? Does it seem a little bit out of place? What if I told you that that one story was taken from the highest read newspaper in the area? What if everywhere you went, from grocery stores to online posts to hotels, you saw people reading and sharing this paper? I wonder if perhaps you would feel that you are out of place or ignorant, or if you'd look at all those around you and think that they are crazy. And I wonder if you would continue to read this paper, or if you would decide after reading that paragraph that maybe this isn't as relevant to your life as you once thought it was. Now, what's remarkably true is every word of that story I read. It's true. It's fact. It's also true that it's from one singular newspaper. But there are portions and passages from three different stories. Now, most of us know intuitively how to read a newspaper. If you simply read one paragraph here and another article here, disconnected from the context of each story, you're going to find it to be the most poorly written and unhelpful resource you've ever encountered. But I wonder if what keeps us from reading the Bible God's own word to us is a similar problem. How many of us play Russian roulette with God's word? We flip through and say, Holy Spirit, lead me. And we pick it up here. How many of us read a chapter and find ourselves confused, as confused as perhaps you did in the opening story, wondering, is there any meaning here? Is this helpful? Is there any purpose? But maybe, just maybe, there's a better way to read the Bible. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, God wants us to know because God made us creatures in his image, creatures who can think and reason and know through the knowledge that God has given to us. As we start our new Bible reading plan here at Sovereign Hope, we're endeavoring together to read over the course of two years the whole of Scripture. It's going to take us two chapters a day. 
one rest or one catch-up day each week. Um, and if you want to join with this, all you have to do is download the Sovereign Hope app. It's right there. It started today. Our readings today was Genesis 1 and John 1. There's built-in memory verses, so kids, uh, you can join with us. Our memory verse this week is Romans 8.1, a great place to start. Maybe next week we'll have a quiz again for you guys up here before this starts. Um, there's also some physical copies in the back uh, for you to grab for the first few months. We're going to get the full plan out in a couple years, but we'd want you guys to join us with that. But oftentimes, we desire to read, but we fizzle out. How many of us have read Genesis, and then we get to Exodus, and then we're like, all right, we tried, we tried real hard, we did real good, and now we're lost. But if we want to read faithfully, we must learn to read the Bible as we read other books, even though it is not simply a book. But we must learn to read it faithfully. That's in light of context, in light of the story itself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come along us and go to where all of us sit, and that is needing to read our Bibles better, wanting more help to read God's Word. And we're going to take eight weeks together, and we're going to walk through the context and story of the Bible with the goal of helping you read your Bible more faithfully and encounter Jesus in the midst of it. What we'll also do is we will encounter the different genres and styles of literature that are inside of God's word. You see, we intuitively do this when we go back to our newspaper analogy. When you read the box score of a basketball game, you're reading that with different principles than if you were reading an editorial piece. Likewise, if you're reading something written to describe the new tax law in Missoula, you're reading that and understanding it differently than you would if you were reading a profile piece on the new bakery that opened down the street. You see, the Bible is just as diverse as any other piece of literature, but it is God's word. And because it is God's word, there is one definitive storyline that if we can grasp and understand, it helps us keep track as we progress through it. And the story of God's word is this. It is the story of a creator God who seeks to redeem a broken people through the work of Jesus Christ. The story of scripture is this, the story of a creator God who seeks to redeem a broken people by the work of Jesus Christ. Where you are in that story and how that story is advancing is important to you if you want to understand the Bible as God intends it to, in a way that makes sense not only to our brains, but seeps into our hearts and shows up in our hands. If you're new to Sovereign Hope, this sermon series is going to be a little different than what we normally do. Right now, we're working through the one book, the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters, and it's going to take us over two years. But we're, we are here in this series, and we're going to take, in two short months, two testaments, 66 books, and 1,200 chapters. Two months, eight weeks. That's what we're endeavoring to do. Therefore, to even call this sermon series an overview is an insult to the word overview. And so I want to give a preface here before we go. There's going to be a lot of content over these next eight weeks. We're being really acute. We need to learn how to read God's word. We need God's word. You need God's word to listen to my preaching. You ought to be able to say, Tyler is off his rocker because God's word says so. And so if you're a note taker, I know we've got note takers here. This is either going to be your greatest friend or your worst enemy. And so I'm going to give you a preface here. Uh, there's going to be so much content in these next eight weeks, I would encourage you to not take notes. Now, I know, gasp. Uh, we have 
the wonderful thing called the internet. And in our app is actually our sermons. You can also find them on whatever podcast you want. You could listen to it the day after. I've printed up extra copies of my manuscript. It's back at the back desk. Listen. If, don't worry about, if you try to catch everything, you'll certainly miss something. And so we want to just act like we're just nod, nod and smile, okay? Just nod and smile when I look at you. If you're writing, shame on you. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, this sermon series is a big overview and it will be incomplete to give you the full nuances of what is in God's word. And so I actually have back at the info desk um, a handful of copies of resources I've printed up that are really helpful to understanding and studying scripture. And there's resources for kids, so so parents with young kids, parents with older kids, adults, adults who are into deeper study, you could grab that there. Those things will be a great companion to your Bible reading and to this sermon series. And because we can't go into such detail in this time frame, I have three simple goals for the next eight weeks. These are the goals. One, to help each of us understand the whole context of scripture as it relates to the story of Jesus Christ. Two, to help us study scripture faithfully. That is, to understand how the context of the story and the style of writing helps us discover God's meaning innate to the text. We do not bring meaning to God's word. God has meaning in his word. It's our job to discern what God is saying by submitting ourselves to the text, not the text to ourselves. And then lastly, to help us by study to savor and apply the wonderful good news of the gospel in daily devotional manners. And so for each of these sermons, we're going to do just that. Each of these sermons is going to have three things we're going to do. We're going to survey the story. That's how the story relates to Jesus. Then we're going to study the story. That's how we as readers are going to track and learn what's going on. And then lastly, we're going to savor the Savior of the story. And so we're going to begin today uh, in, by seeing Jesus in the Pentateuch, where our primary theme is going to be this. In the Pentateuch, we're going to see the theme of God and his people. Or to put it another way, we're going to see a story of creation and recreation. And so today we're going to examine the first five books of the Bible. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are five books written by a man named Moses. And they're meant to be a unit. It's a single story. And maybe when I said Jesus in the Pentateuch, you already hit the fast forward button. You're lost and confused. And so in the Hebrew Old Testament, these five books were grouped and called the Torah, which is simply the Hebrew word for the law. It's where God gives the law to his people who he's brought out of slavery. In the Greek Old Testament, it's called the Pentateuch, which has this really deep, profound meaning. Five books. That's how they figured it out. And so the, whether it's, you call it the Pentateuch, whether you call it the Torah, whether you call it the first five books of the Bible, the name matters less than the content here. And this is super important for us when it comes to understanding the Bible, because just as in basketball, each coach puts on his best five players to start the game. It was never me. Uh, this is, Shelly, that was really loud (laughs) and hurtful. (laughs) These books are God's starting five. In fact, there are four primary covenants that progress through scripture that help us understand all of it. Two of those, the first two, are explicitly included in this. That is the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. The next two being the Davidic covenant and the new covenant are foretold very clearly in these first five books. In other words, these five books are the seed out of which the whole of the story of Scripture grows. In fact, one of these books, Deuteronomy, is the book Jesus quotes most in his earthly ministry. And so while we might feel lost and we might want to skip all of this, Jesus didn't skip this. 
This was meaningful to him and it's meaningful to us. And guess what? It wasn't written for Jesus. It was written for us. So with that said, let's dive into our first goal today. This is a survey of the story. And so to put it simply and clearly again, what is the story of the Pentateuch about? It is about this. It is about God and his people. And this is played out through the themes of creation and recreation. And this is seen most clearly in the first three chapters of the Bible in which we encounter the creation story, God creating Adam and Eve, and the story of what is called the fall of man, where Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a perfect garden. And here's where I want to introduce us to three primary themes that will help you when reading scripture. You could always ask yourself, where am I in relationship to these themes? And those three themes are this, God's people, in God's place, in God's presence. Have you ever wondered what you were made for? Have you ever wondered what's behind your fears and what fuels your desire? It is that you might be God's people in God's place, in God's presence. And Genesis helps us understand this because we see God's creation ideal. The creator's goal for humanity was this, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's perfect place, the Garden of Eden, in God's perfect presence, where God dwelt and walked with them in perfect intimacy. These three themes of presence, place, and people are throughout the whole Old Testament, but what the Pentateuch shows most quickly is how easily it was made. It cost God nothing but his word. You have to try hard to do anything. God speaks and creates the world. How easily it was made, how quickly it was lost, and how God himself set forth a plan to reunite all three of those things again. Because in Genesis 3, as you might have heard, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and their sin caused them to be removed from God's presence and kicked out of God's place. They were no longer God's people. Why? Because they were no longer like God. God was sinless, and they were now sinful. And an unholy people cannot dwell in the midst of a holy God any more than gasoline can safely dwell by fire. They were no longer in God's presence. They were removed from God's place and they lost the essence of what it meant to be God's people because their sin was rebellion against God. In the first three chapters, God's people, God's presence, and God's place were removed. What God created, sinful humanity had ruined. But there's a lot more than the first three pages of scripture. God was going to begin a recreation program so that he will be their God and that they will be his people. God is going to covenant to save them, to win them back into his presence and into his place. And that new place, as they lost Eden, is now going to be called the promised land or Canaan. Those two things are synonymous in the Pentateuch. And so theologically, the premise of the first five books of the Bible is this. God created and now he is recreating. That's the theological principle of it. His people were lost and he's going to recreate a new people but there's also a geographic aspect of the Pentateuch. And that is we are going from Eden to Canaan. We were in Eden. We fell and were removed into the desert. And now God is bringing us to the land of milk and honey in Canaan. So that's the big story of the Pentateuch. From Eden to Canaan and everything in between, how is God going to recreate his sinful people? God is gonna fix what sin broke by making his people his own, by dwelling among them, and by bringing them back into a perfect world. To see this in most clarity, 
The passage that is kind of key to the Pentateuch is what Marshall just read for us in Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 40. And so this is Moses summarizing kind of the thrust of what happens in these first five books. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day God created man on the earth, Genesis 1, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened, or was it ever heard of? Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? So there he's talking about Sinai, which is in the book of Exodus. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and wars, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by, a great, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? There's the book of Exodus again. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. These are the laws we see in Exodus and in Leviticus. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord is giving you for all time. Because of God's love and his faithfulness, he is going to redeem his people. What must God's people know? At the end of the Pentateuch, lay it in your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above and there is no other besides him. You see, if humanity is ever going to be free from the corruption of sin and the death and pain which accompanies it, if we are ever to encounter what we were made to live for, then we must learn to cling exclusively to the God who made us. This is the story of God and his people and his plan to create and recreate according to his mercy. That's the story of the Pentateuch. Now, how do we study this story? This is our second point today. How do we study this? Now, as you read this, you're going to find a bunch of different types of genres. You're going to see some poetry. You're going to see some songs. You're going to see some legal discourse, which is our favorite. And you're going to see all sorts of stuff. But what you'll see primarily when you read through the first five books of the Bible is narrative, which means you have to pay attention to the narrative. It's reading a story. How do you read stories to your kids? You make note of the characters and what the characters are doing and where they're going. And often these characters are introduced by genealogies. Why is that? Well, because it is a story. It is not merely a story. It's real history. This is not a fairy tale fable given to us to make sense of our world. This is the actual account of our history and who we are. It is our story. This is the point of the book of Genesis, which means beginnings. It is the book of beginnings. Genesis 2 makes the case that everything that follows in the book of Genesis is actually a story about us. It is the genealogy of all mankind. Look at Genesis 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Everything that follows is the story of the generations of who God created. This is our story. We were made in the image of God. 
We were made as God's children. And so this is really important. If you want to understand who you are and what you're here for and how to fix what ails you, you cannot merely seek to rediscover the garden. You cannot merely seek to find a different place. You cannot merely seek to understand those around you to better understand your people. We cannot rediscover Eden and make sense of ourselves. We cannot rediscover each other and make sense of ourselves. We must rediscover God if we are to make sense of ourselves. Just as understanding your own parents helps you make sense of your life, understanding the image of the one in whose image we were created, the substance of the one whose image we were created, it makes sense of who we are. Now, sometimes these genealogies are burdensome to read. You might panic and say, what am I supposed to take from this? And to that I say, don't worry. Moses will get you there. <laughs> Just trust the author. He's gonna, it'll be clear. It might not be clear in that chapter, but it might be clear later. And oftentimes what Moses is doing, if he gives two genealogies back to back, he's using the first genealogy to contrast the second genealogy. And that second genealogy will include the main character from that until the next. If you were with us in our Advent series, we actually saw this in Genesis 4. You'll see this in a couple days as we read, where the genealogy of Cain is meant to be a contrast to the genealogy of Seth, where Cain's grandson boasted in his name, in the name of Lamech. Seth's offspring led to a time where people called on the name of the Lord. The name of man or the name of God, those are the two lines growing throughout human history. And as you read Genesis, you'll notice in the midst of these genealogies that as Humanity is growing, problems are growing. As people propagate, so too does sin. God is less known, perfection is less seen, wickedness abounds. So much so that in Genesis chapter 7, the world is increasingly wicked and God brings a flood to judge all of human history, except for one righteous family, and that is Noah and his family. And after God judges the earth and spares Noah on the ark, God enters into another covenant with Noah. And this is in Genesis 9, verses 7 through 17. Now, I want you to pay attention here to what God is saying. First, and you'll realize this if you read today in Genesis, and you, that's God speaking to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That's the same language God used when he created Adam and Eve. Here's a new creation, a recreation after sin had been judged. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring forever. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for, for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of, of all the flesh that is on the earth. God said this to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So God recreates, 
Even we hear echoes of, of all the beasts of the field that God created in Genesis are here being recreated and re-promised in Genesis chapter 9. But God knew, and we see this in this text, that as long as man remained, the problem of sin would remain. But he made a promise. He made a promise that even though man's sin would remain, he would never again judge the whole world on account of sin. Even if sin continued to be a problem, and if you read Genesis, it will. God will make a way for some people to be spared from the death their sin deserved. God would somehow make his people to dwell in his presence and to live with him in his place by dealing with sin in a way that's different than judgment. This is the promise God made to know. This is why all of us have breath here today, even when we look out the wickedness of our life, is that God is making a different way. But guess what? Even after this covenant, things got worse. At Babel, the whole world seemed to forget about God. Again, the rebellion of Genesis 3 of making a name for oneself rises up, but Noah's, one of Noah's faithful sons, Shem, had a great, great, great grandson named Abram. And just as it seemed that the genealogy of man was always and only consistently wicked despite God's intervention, God intervened again and made a covenant with Abram, this time in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. And I want you to listen. Do you hear the themes of God's people, in God's place, in God's presence? Verse 4 through 8, excuse me. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's already we've seen those two covenants, the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And God's covenants are important to us because it shows us the structure of Scripture. The structure of Scripture is not man's account to redeem themselves. That amounts to nothing. This is not a self-help book. If you look at this wondering what you must do to be saved, you have misread the story. This is a story of God's zeal to enter into our mess and to covenant himself to us, not by your merit, but by his mercy. Our response, which is required to be saved, is based not on our effort, but on God's mercy. God was going to be Abraham's God. That's what he said. He said, listen, Abe, here are two options. Choose what's best. No, he said, I'm going to be your God. I am going to take you. I am going to deliver you. I am going to change you. I am going to bless you. He was going to be God to his people. He was going to bring them to his place in Canaan. By God's mercy, what are we seeing? The curse of sin in Genesis 3 is already being reversed. And the rest of Genesis, this book of beginnings, tracks this line of Abraham. This promised line. We're introduced shortly after to Isaac, Abraham's son. And then to Isaac's son, Jacob, who is given the name Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes are God's promised people to Abraham. But this book concludes with the question of God's place being at the forefront of our mind. God has been faithful to recreate a people. 
Abraham's line is thriving, but they are not in God's place. They're in Egypt. But God's promise remained. The specific promise was given to a specific tribe in Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10. This is how Jacob blessed his son Judah in 49, verses 9 through 10. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall shall be the obedience of peoples. Even though Genesis concludes with God's people, not in God's place, there is a promise of a king who will rule forever from the tribe of Judah to whom all people will ultimately obey. He will be a forever ruler of a forever place of God's forever people. And now in the book of Exodus, it resumes and we're introduced to a new problem, the problem of slavery. God's people are many. God's people are mighty, but God's people are enslaved. And so God introduces a new deliverer named Moses. And God comes to Moses and sends him to the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh. And he says, I am going to bring my people out. Again, he doesn't simply give Pharaoh choices. He says, I'm going to do it. You want to do it the easy way or the hard way? And Pharaoh does what we do. He's like, we'll take the hard way, please. And so we learn this over the course of our life. And what we see is that God's promise, the validity of God's promise, is actually backed by the power of God himself. When we encounter God's promise in his words, I can make a promise to you and it's limited by my limited power. But if that promise is given by an unlimited God, then who are we to doubt God's word? And almost every miracle, almost every plague that Moses does to redeem God's people out of slavery by the power of God was a direct affront to all of Israel's false gods. Now this might be a really interesting thing for us to think just in terms of comparative religions, but what's at the heart of it? The heart of it is this is that God doesn't simply want to be seen as the God. He wants to expose how foolish, how weak, and how ignorant all of our false idols are. The Lord is God in heaven and on earth beneath it, and beside him there is no other. At the end of human history, at the end of every heart that has ever been enslaved, all the false hopes, all of our idols, all the gods and might of our flesh will be mocked and seen as foolish by the saving power of the one true and living God. But after God shames the Egyptians and delivers his people, an interesting thing happens. God brings his freshly saved people to this mountain called Mount Sinai, really important in all the the last four books of the Pentateuch. And here, God reveals himself to his people. At this point, he's revealed himself to Abraham, he's revealed himself to Jacob, he's revealed himself to Moses, but now God reveals himself to his people in fire and word on the mountain. But it's actually here that the problem grows worse. The story of the crisis with the physical power of Egypt lasts for only 14 chapters in the book of Exodus. But the rest of the 40 chapters chronicles Israel's greater crisis. That is the crisis of their response to a holy God. One author and theologian, Stephen Dempster, so beautifully pointed out the problem of Sinai when he said this. He said, these texts show that Sinai, not Egypt, is Israel's largest roadblock to Canaan. Sinai, not Egypt, is Israel's largest roadblock to Canaan. Israel's biggest issues in Exodus are not the slave drivers of Egypt. It's their own response to the God who saved them. 
the responses in the sinful rebellion which remains in their hearts. Almost immediately after God delivers them out, what do they do? They set up false idols. They grumble. They wonder if the God who redeemed them from the most powerful nation in the whole world could actually feed them. Does he know where he's going? Does he have a plan? Have you ever felt that way? But here we begin to see the nature of the God who's worked in human history. And this is so important because we often think our biggest problems are external and outside of us. We think we could tell God what our biggest problem is and that if he doesn't fix it, he is no God at all. But what you will discover about your own heart when you read the book of Exodus is that the biggest roadblock between you and the life you were created for is actually your relationship to the God who has revealed himself to you in his word. Broken hearts and sinful actions lead to anarchy in the presence of God. You cannot get to where you're going but by passing by this mountain. And this mountain, encountering a holy God as an unholy people, is an insurmountable crisis. But God acts. The problem with this people is they fear him because they're not like him. They cannot go see him because they are blind to him, even though he's in flaming fire speaking on a mountain like a voice of thunder. So what does God do? He gives them his laws. And why does he do this? Because he wants them to be his people. He wants Israel. Israel, who fears God because he's holy, his goal then is to make them holy, to change that sinful fear into a holy fear. And the book of Leviticus then begins to outline the length through which these laws are going to recreate God's newly saved people so that they will be holy as the Lord is holy. As you read the laws which are recounted in the last half of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus and a little bit in Numbers, I want you to pay attention to the details of those laws. How seemingly arbitrary it might seem to us today, but how it's pointing to one unique thing that we cannot miss. And that is that God's people are to be distinct. If God saves us, God changes us. God didn't give Israel the law. Now, here's where we need to be careful about legalism. God didn't give Israel the law in Egypt and say, here's the deal, Israel. If you guys obey, I'll come and I'll save you. That's not how it happens. Instead, God saves Israel and he brings them out and he gives them their law in the desert so that they might continue to live in the presence of God and no longer long for the trash of Egypt that they might desire instead of the meat pots of Egypt, the grace of God. Our lives as God's people should look markedly different because our God is markedly different. Nothing in this world is like him. Neither in heaven nor on earth is there any God like our God. And so where does this show up in your life today? I was talking to someone who recognized uh, that he could tell all of the Christians in his workplace because they all had kids. In his field, it was very high paying. There were travel options everywhere. And much later into life, individuals would choose to take the money and the travel and to live for themselves. But the Christians looked radically different because they willingly took lesser paying jobs in the company that allowed them to be home so that they could go home, not travel to Tahiti, but change poopy diapers of which your daughter used a white Christmas dress as toilet paper on, which may or may not have happened in our house this week. <laughs> but here's why. If we are made in the image of God, then our greatest joy is living like God. 
And if our God exists in glorious trinity that is three in one, then our God is by nature other-oriented. He is a God who pours himself out for others. We then realize that though we hoard and keep seeming to satisfy ourselves through all we can gather to serve our selfishness, that it is in our joy to pour our lives out for the goodness of others because that is how our God has loved us. Can you point to Christian distinctions in your life? As countercultural as having kids, as sacrificing sleep, as giving generously, of not watching what your friends are watching, If we're made in the image of God, our lives should look like God, not out of obligation, but out of elation. In fact, look at how Moses talks about these laws in Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 8. Keep them, so he's talking about these laws, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes. So remember, the, what are these statutes? When we read, we're in Deuteronomy, what are these statutes? These are all the statutes that you probably rolled your eyes at early in the morning when you're reading through Leviticus. These statutes, these very things, what is the response when the other people see them? They will say, surely This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God's law is not only life-changing, it is joy-producing. Living according to God's standards is here in, Je- in Deuteronomy 4. It is the envy of the nations. Is it the envy of the Christian? Do we desire not merely to be saved by God, but to be sanctified by him? To be called according to his name by giving up any claim to our life and realizing this is for our joy. This is for our good. The book of Numbers shows us how difficult it is by the power of the flesh to come to that conclusion. What is the story of the book of Numbers? Bummer. (laughs) God's people can't get out of their own way. Despite his presence leading them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, despite his miracles to feed them, despite his word to bring them into the promised land, they habitually fear man more than God. God supernaturally deadlifts these people to the doorway of Canaan after delivering them from the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. And Israel sends in spies and they see some tall walls and some big people and they quake in their boots and they say, God, you cannot give us this land. We will not go in and they refuse to be changed by the God who saved them. You see, unless God changes our hearts towards him, you can lead a horse out of slavery, but you cannot make him drink the milk of Canaan. Unless God changes our hearts, slavery remains. So in Numbers, God judges unbelieving Israel in another act of creation and recreation. With the exception of a few faithful leaders, the entire generation that was brought out of Egypt dies in the desert as they wander for 40 years on account of their refusal to believe. And when the book of Deuteronomy begins, after these 40 years of discipline, Moses addresses in another act of creation and recreation this new crop of Israelites. And what does he do? He recounts in one of the most beautiful sermons ever given the history of God's people up until that point. 
He shows them stories of God's faithfulness. He reminds them of the dangers of faithlessness. And he inspires them to go into Canaan. They sit round two at the gateway of the promised land. And he says, will you trust this God? Will his rules dwell richly inside of you? Would you believe that as God's people move into God's place, that God's presence will go with you? And this is what my daughter calls when she watches a TV show that ends on a place where there's no narrative resolve. She goes, ah, it ended in a cliffhanger. (laughs) That's how Deuteronomy ends. Will God's people go into God's place and enjoy God's presence? Moses actually prophesies at the end of the book that God's people will fall away, even in the land. Why? Because the problem isn't the land, just as the problem wasn't the slave drivers. The problem is their hearts which refuse to trust in God. The problem is sin. And this is where one specific chapter in the book of Leviticus is helpful. This is Leviticus 16, and this is where we encounter what is called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 20 through 22, and then verse 34. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place, so he's talking about the priest of Israel here, and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron, that's the high priest, shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities, that is, the sins of the people, and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And this shall be a statute for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This is God's forever statute. On account of the sins of the people, there was a goat who was going to bear their sins safely away from them. Why? So that God could dwell in the midst of them. So that an unholy people could dwell in the midst of a holy God. If sin remained, the problem of Sinai remains. If sin remains, we stand at Sinai fearful or rebellious. But if sin was dealt with, we can trust God and be in submission to him. But this goat who would bear the sins of the people was an act of atonement. It would take away their sins and make God pleased with them. God was going to remove their sin. And this is where we turn in our final point this morning to savor the savior of the story. Where is Jesus in the Pentateuch? You guys are about to see he is everywhere. He is the greater Moses who intercedes on behalf of a sinful people. He is the bronze serpent raised up in the wilderness so that those who have sinned might look upon him and live. He is manna from heaven, the bread of life, that all who eat on him will never hunger or thirst again. He is water from the true and living rock. He is the great deliverer who divides what stands between us to bring us safely into the presence of God. But he is primarily here in the day of atonement. What do you need more than anything in life? What do you need more than even understanding the story of scripture? We need more than a change of politics or perspectives. We need more than a new landscape. We need a change of heart. We need to be freed from sin. To be God's people, we need a special recreation that is a spiritual one. Moses knew this. The law required that all of God's males would be marked off as his people by physical circumcision. But look at what Moses says God will ultimately do in Deuteronomy 24, or 30, verse 6, excuse me. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring, so that what? The problem of Sinai is overcome. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, those commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are articulated all the way back in the first part of Deuteronomy. And here we see how that happens. By the flesh, it cannot happen. But when God changes your heart, we are made to love him. We need our hearts to be marked out by the grace of God. And consider what Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 11. For in him, that is Christ, we see Christ in verse 8, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, the presence of God in the person of God, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, that is in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus is the one who circumcises our hearts. It is in Jesus that we are marked off as a new spiritual people, where the law sought to apply change to a rebellious people from the outside in. Jesus brings us change by grace through faith from the inside out. He frees us from slavery to sin so that we can respond to God rightly. How does Jesus do this? He does this by becoming the goat of atonement. Paul says this in Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus fulfills the law for us. He meets God's perfect righteousness himself. He was faithful where none of us could be. As you read in the Pentateuch, you will read stories of scandalous and destructive sin that make you squirm. And as you read that, read it in light of knowing you have a sacrificial king who never gave in. When we read that, we have one thought. I would never do that. Guess what? Human history says otherwise. People do it, and it could be you. But here was Jesus who lived as we lived, and never caved to sin. And being perfect, he became the scapegoat of sacrifice. First Peter 2, 24 says this, he that is Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that is the cross, that we might die to sin and live by righteousness, creation and recreation in Jesus he makes us God's people because he was God's perfect person in the flesh. If we want to make it past the Sinai experiences of our life, we must submit ourselves to the work of Jesus by faith. The author of Hebrews says there is still the promise of an eternal place that still stands. A greater Canaan, a better Eden is held out for us in heaven. But before any of you get there, you come to the mountain of God. You will stand before the fiery presence face to face with God in all of his holiness and how will you respond? Will you grumble at him? Will you fear him? Or will you stand in the confidence of atonement? Will you realize that Jesus has done what we could never do by fulfilling the law perfectly? He's given us his righteousness that we might stand before him in the presence 
of the atonement of Jesus. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And that salvation brings us into new living. And this is where obedience becomes life-giving and joyful. When you learn to trust the God who we exclusively worship because only he exclusively saves, we joyfully live in his presence as his people. And so where the Pentateuch ends, today begins. Where the Pentateuch ends with God's people standing at the river of division saying, will you go? Will you trust? Will you be mine? This is where today is for each of us. Will you trust that Jesus and Jesus alone redeems us for what we were made for? Will you give your life wholly over to him? Will you joyfully submit yourself to the sanctification of the spirit by grace? Will he be your God? And will you be his people through the wonderful work of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we listen to many, many words, that we will be spared from the intellectual titillation of understanding a piece of literature, but instead might we be convicted by the work of your Holy Spirit. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of bone and flesh, of soul and marrow, so that all are naked and exposed before it. So Jesus, we pray that grace might mend what the word has pierced. That we would see the story of God and his people and we would reconcile us first and foremost at the mountain. That we would be your people, not through our might, not through our obedience, but through Christ and his. And Lord, in turn, open our eyes to see all of your beauty in your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.